Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored, The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Well, would you turn with me tonight to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to enter into it tonight very carefully, very slowly. If you've read ahead of us, you know what's coming. It's amazing to me as we're looking at the consequences of fleshly living. Tonight we're going to talk about the sin of demanding your rights the sin of demanding your rights. In chapter five, we saw two of the main, as he begins a list here, two of the main consequences of fleshly living. The first consequence was immorality. A man was living in incest with the wife of his father. And it's interesting to me, even though that was bad, yes, and terrible, and he says worse than you find in the Gentile world. Not only that, the, the people of the world knew about it. It was, it was an incestuous relationship that was going on all the time. And this, the sad part about it is he only spends about one verse on that and the rest of the chapter on the indifference of the people in the fact that they will not deal with that sin. That's the second sin. The first one is the sin of immorality. The second one is the sin of indifference. And the cure for that was church discipline. And we looked at that. And of course, I hope that it's helping you. It, it speaks to my own heart. I sometimes wished it was a little more joyful in some of the things we're looking at, but at the same time, when you don't walk in the Spirit, these are the things that you can look forward to. We saw the painful act of church discipline in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. We saw the purifying effect of church discipline in chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. We saw the particular focus of church discipline in chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. And now we come into chapter 6, the sin of demanding your own rights. But before we do this, there's some things we're going to have to go back and look at. Now, I know sometimes it's hard to do, but I'm telling you, you will not understand chapter six unless we go over these things and you get them in your head. Because until we understand what the church is, folks, we're not going to understand why it is that Paul says the things that he says of this situation that takes place in chapter six. The chances of somebody offending you, harming you, causing damage to your life in some way or another, emotionally, mentally, or physically, in the church is not only possible, and I hate to tell you this, but it's very probable in the day that we live in. It was in the day of Corinth. It is in these days. And that's because so many people come in. They may say they're believers. Maybe they're not. We have all different levels of, of maturity within the body of Christ. We used to tell people around here when they would join the church, you will be offended when you join this church. <laughs> And a lot of folks will say, thanks, Wayne. That's really what we're looking for, a church in which we can be offended. All we were trying to do is be honest. 
There are people here. Hey, listen, if you're going into the pastorate, can I go ahead and tell you whatever church you're going to pastor, you're going to be offended. I mean, it's just part of the turf. When you deal with people, you're going to be offended. You're going to be harmed. There are going to be things that happen to you. But now listen to me. The things that happen to you, that's not the key. The key is how are you going to respond to those people when that occurs? Now, to whatever degree you want to take it, from the thing of somebody talking about you to something even much more serious, as we'll see as we study through chapter six, whatever the degree is, you've got to understand the principle that we're going to introduce this chapter with tonight. First Corinthians chapter one and verse 11 shows us there can be conflict in the church. There can be difficult situations to occur within the body of Christ. Chapter one, verse 11, he says, for I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. And that word quarrel isn't a friendly little argument. That word quarrel is a very heated, difficult situation. And he says, I've already heard about this. Paul was telling them. If you look over in chapter three and verse three, you see some other indications of it. In chapter three and verse three, he says, for you're still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife, and those two are always together. Jealousy is the inward something of, uh, that you did just is bothering you, and then strife is the outward symptom of that. Contention with one another. Always fighting and grumbling and all this kind of thing. And then the word division is added, although not in the New American Standard Translation. It's in the Texas Receptus and in the King James, and I think it's important. The word division means to stand apart from somebody with your feet down and you're ready to fight. That's the idea. And he says, this is going on among you. Now you would think when you join a church, surely you're gonna find a better bunch of people than that. Well, hopefully you do. But, but that doesn't mean there are not going to be people like this in every church. And doesn't mean you're not going to be offended. Doesn't mean you're not going to be harmed. Doesn't mean that somebody's not going to do you wrong. That's not the issue. The issue again, and I say it over and over again, how are you going to respond to it? And before you determine your response, let's go back to chapter one and remind ourselves of a few things or be reminded of a few things. Chapter one and verse two. And I told, remember when we first started this about 40 messages ago, and by the way, I was counting them up. I think this is number 40 in our series. 40 messages ago, when we got into first Corinthians, I told you something. And I said, in chapter one, verses two through nine, you have a grid through which you are to look at this book. And I said, this grid is gonna keep coming up over and over and over again. And you cannot understand this part without understanding this grid in verses two through nine of chapter one. And let me just show you a few things about it that'll help you as we get into chapter six. In verse two, he says to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now remember this, ecclesia, the called out ones. Now, the moment you tell somebody you're a believer, you're a part of God's church down here on this earth, it means you've been called out of the world and their way of doing things and into Christ and his way of doing things. I could stop right there and go into chapter six and then maybe you'd understand. You don't do the things like, like the world does it anymore. We're called out of that way of living. John, in the book of John, in chapter 14, he's, Jesus said, I am the truth and I am the life, but he says, I'm something else. I'm the what? I'm the way. And when you're called into Christ, you do it his way. We're the called out ones. And one of the first things the world notices about our behavior is we don't act like them in any given situation of our life. So we are a unique community of human beings. We're in a class all by ourselves. We are human. 
but there's something different about us. He goes on to say in verse two, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now listen, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Now he tells us right here, that class that we've been put into. We've been set apart by his grace, taken out of Adam and washed by his blood and put over here into Christ. So amongst all the human beings that live on this earth, all of the educated and intelligent people that are out there that don't know Jesus Christ, we are in a class all by ourselves. We go out and mingle with them in the sense only of sharing the gospel. We're in the world, but not of the world. But we are different. We are different. We have been sanctified. And the way we've been sanctified is he has come to live in our hearts and in our lives. Look over at 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19. Let's just make sure we've got all these things down before we go into chapter 6. A lot of people who put their guns on when you get into controversial chapters and they want to shoot at you, but I want to tell you something. I'm going to disarm you with these scriptures because we are not like the world. We don't think like the world. We've been called out of the world. We're, in, we're, a, we're a group. Matter of fact, was it Peter says we're a royal priesthood. We're, we're a royal people, a, 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 a totally different group of folks amongst all humanity. In chapter 6 and verse 19 of 1 Corinthians, he says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. How are we sanctified? We're set apart and put in this class by the fact that God the Holy Spirit has come to live in us. God lives in us. Now he enables us to be and to do what he himself would do. And as members of his body, if you'll stay right there in chapter six, look at verse 20. We don't have the right anymore to do as we please. We don't have the right anymore to do as we please. He says in verse 20, for you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You know what it means to glorify God? To glorify means to make sure that all the recognition comes to him. Show the proper esteem that he has by making sure that everything points to him and never points to you. Let your body be a vessel through which he can work so that all the glory will come back unto him. That's what kind of people we are. You know, I think back before I became a believer, I was in the church, but I want to tell you something. I never did anything that all the glory might go to God. I can remember planning things, everything I ever did, folks. And I was in, I was in it for a long time before God got a hold of my life and showed me what salvation really was. And everything I did somehow had a way of coming back and pleasing me or somehow benefiting me. But I'll tell you, when Christ comes to live in you and he sets you apart, no longer is that your goal. No longer is that your purpose. Your purpose now is to only bring glory unto him. You've been called out of the way of the world. You've been called into Christ. We just don't act like the world acts. Now I want to tell you something before I go any further. You're going to have a war in your mind as we walk through chapter 6. You're going to have a war in your mind. Your mind is going to scream at you and say, that just doesn't make sense. But my friend, if you'll put this in perspective, it makes all the sense in the world. And when you present your body as a living sacrifice to Christ, holy and acceptable unto him, that becomes your reasonable service of worship. And what is not reasonable to your mind right now, once you're surrendered to him, becomes very reasonable in your life. And then you begin to see he has a better way. And it's not the way of the world. We don't respond like the world. We have no right to respond like the world. 
Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 16. We even have the privilege of knowing how he thinks. Isn't that incredible? We've been shifted from AM to FM. <laughs> That's, you know, when I say that, I don't mean to knock AM. <laughs> There's some pretty good stations on AM. I think I found two. But on FM, FM, that just seems to be a better band or something. I don't understand any of this stuff. All I know is on my car, when I put it on AM and I hit that little select button, it doesn't hardly stop, but maybe twice when it goes all the way through. But I can go be going through some other town and put it on FM and it just keeps on stopping. It's whoop, 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 the station's everywhere. And they're clear as a bell. Well, you see, when you're lost, you're on AM. Oh, you think you're right. Oh, you think you're right. And so logical. And your common sense just blesses you. But when you get saved, he not only saves you, he saves your mind. And he flips you up on FM. And now you can think the way God wants you to think. Now, that doesn't mean you're thinking that way, but it means you can. Look in verse 16 in 1 Corinthians 2. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? He's talking about the foolish people of the world. He look here. But we have the what? The mind of Christ. And I'll tell you where it's found. It's found right here and the Holy Spirit of God taking it and renewing our minds with it. Now you may not be thinking that way, but you can think that way. So when it comes to understanding scripture, you're gonna have to see it from his eyes, not from your eyes. You don't come at it from your hurt. You don't come at it from your circumstance. You don't come at it from what's happened to you. You come at it the way God says for you to come at it. And he'll give you an understanding of scripture if you'll allow him to do that. No matter what the world says, it's ridiculous. If it says it in God's word, that means it's wisdom. That means it's, it's what God wants us to understand. Well, go back to verse nine of 1 Corinthians chapter one. We know that everything in our life, regardless of what it is, can work for us and not against us. Why? Because we serve a faithful God. And God's gonna be faithful to us no matter how we're treated, God's going to be faithful for us no matter what happens in our life. We know that. We cling to that. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 9, it says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son to participate in him, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, no matter what happens, you see, right now in the service, it sounds easy. But as soon as we leave, if something traumatic happens to any of us, we tend to walk away from this truth. You can't do that. You're gonna to have to keep the truth right here. I remember when our little baby girl was born dead and we prayed and prayed and prayed that she'd be alive because the doctor said sometimes in the latter stages like that, they'll turn a certain way and you can't hear, pick up the heartbeat. Maybe she's alive, but she wasn't alive here on this earth. She went right on. She just bypassed this old sorry world and went right on in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll get to see her one day because David said in the Old Testament, I, he can't come to me, but I can go to him. I know where she is, so we didn't lose anything. But I want to tell you something, folks, in that room, knowing every bit of truth that I've ever known in my life, it is one thing to preach it in a pulpit. It's another thing to be in the midst of the situation, cling to that truth and not walk away from it, no matter how your mind screams at you and says, that's stupid, that's ridiculous, you don't deserve this. But God says, trust me, I'm faithful. Now listen, if we're going to be the church of Jesus Christ, we're going to have to learn to act like the church of Jesus Christ. And when things don't appear reasonable to the world's way of thinking, so be it. It never has from God's word. Isaiah 55 says, my ways are higher. My thoughts are higher. They're not your ways. They're not your thoughts. You're going to have to be raised up to think the way I think. You're going to have to be raised up to have the wisdom that I want you to have. Now, that has got to be the mindset of the believer or you'll never understand the sixth chapter 
of 1 Corinthians. All believers in a class all by themselves. Their behavior is dictated and enabled by Christ who lives in us through his Holy Spirit. We live, we literally live to preserve the unity of the body of Christ. Turn over to Ephesians chapter four. I want you to see something here. And folks, we've got to understand this. We've got to understand this. You want to, it's kind of like the apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter three. He said, you want to talk about pedigree? I'll tell you about my pedigree. You want to talk about how people have hurt you? You have about three or four days. I'll share with you a few things about being hurt. But folks, that's not the issue. It's not how people have treated us. It's how do we respond to them as the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter four, verse one. And you know, there was a prayer there at the last part of chapter three. That's the hinge of the whole book of Ephesians. It sums up three chapters, sets up the next three chapters. And right after you come out of that prayer and look at the last two, word, last two phrases of chapter three in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter three, the last two verses, verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works where? Within us. He lives in us to do that. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That word amen means let it always be so. In other words, let all the recognition go to Christ within the church. And so the church says, God, you be seen in us. We don't want to be seen. You be seen in us. How do you do that? Verse one, he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And man, it's a, well, I'll not begin to probe that verse, but the word worthy there is the word that means something that is axios. It means you put a weight on one side of the scale. You need a weight of the same uh, measure to be on the other side of the scale so they'll balance. For three chapters, he tells you how you can be strengthened in the inner man. For three chapters, he tells you how the Holy Spirit of God works within the life of the believer. Then he says, now, that's a heavy weight. Now, you need to learn to choose to let him do the things that you know now he can do so that your life will balance out what you, what you have. In other words, let your, let your walk balance your talk. <laughs> Since you have all of this, learn to live out of it so your life will be balanced. And people can see the truth by watching you live. So he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Verse two, with all humility. The word humility there is the attitude one has of himself. Now I want to tell you something. If you don't have this attitude and somebody does something to harm you, offend you, cost you, or anything else, I guarantee you, you're not going to understand the word humility. The word humility is the word that means to get down as flat as you can. Like laying a, a pancake down on the ground. You can't see it at all. Tapinos. It means to get down so far that if people looked, they couldn't see you. They could only see Jesus in you. That's humility. Knowing what you're not. A proper estimation of oneself in light of who God is. That's humility. And then he says, with gentleness. The word gentleness is really meekness or, or brokenness. It's the word parelftis. It, it, it's the word of something. You still have strength. Matter of fact, as the world goes, you have rights, but your strength, your power, and your rights are under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. It's like taking a wild horse and breaking it and putting it up under control. That's the word for gentleness. It doesn't mean weakness. 
but it's meekness. It's, that's, that's the word he uses there. And then he goes on. He says, with patience. You know what patience is? <laughs> patience is what I thank God he has for me every day. Of the, it's macrothumia. That is not dealing with circumstances. That's another word, epomeno. This is macrothumia. Macrothumia means the ability, now listen to this, to bear up under whatever it is you have to face in life, even in the church. You bear up, and matter of fact, especially in the church, that's his context, to bear up under whatever comes your way. If you're hurt, if you're, if you're reviled, if you're talked about, if you're slandered, it doesn't matter. Remember the example is Jesus in 1 Peter, who when reviled, reviled not back, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And if he lives in me, then he enables me to live that way. So therefore I can be one with patience. He says, showing forbearance to one another in love. You know what forbearance is? Let's just say Chuck and I had an out with one another. Now I, would, I don't know why I could ever disagree with Chuck. I love Chuck. I mean, he's older than dirt, but I love Chuck. Let's just, say, let's just say Chuck and I just got in a big disagreement. Let's say it was an elders meeting. We just got upset with one another, which would probably disqualify us both. But let's just say we did. And all of a sudden, I realized that maybe Chuck is wrong. Let's just say Chuck's wrong. He'd probably want me to use the illustration the other way. Let's just say Chuck is wrong. But let's just say I'm right. As far as I know, under God, I'm right. I want to tell you what I'm going to do. Come here, Chuck. I'm going to show him. I want to show you what forbearance is. Now, folks, listen, most people, when they have a riff with somebody, no matter what it is, are going to kick them out. Turn around, Chuck, this way. You know what forbearance is? I love him and I'm going to bear up against him. And no matter how far he kicks me and whatever he tries to do, I think I could wipe him. <laughs> that feels kind of good. <laughs> Thank you, Chuck. <laughs> That's forbearance. That's what forbearance is. I'm not going to walk away and talk about him. I'm not going to write letters to people or tell people and ruin his reputation. I'm not going to let it make me grow bitter. No, sir. I'm going to get right up against him and then by the power that God has placed within my life to protect the unity of the body, I'm going to bear up against him. We're going to forbear together until God can bring him through and we can continue to walk as brothers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what forbearance is. Now, I'll tell you where he's headed. Look in verse 3. This is, this is one of the main themes of all of Ephesians. The unity of the church. This is where our witness comes from. And folks, if 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what's happening, the unity is not being restored. It's being ripped apart by people who won't live this way. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. He says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I want you to notice that verse very carefully. Do you see anywhere in that verse where he says to produce the unity of the Spirit? Do you think that somehow fighting with one another is going to produce anything? Listen, what we've got to realize is if you're a part of the body of Christ, this special group of people that's in a class all by itself, this group of people has been called out of the way the world does it into the way the Christ does it. These people who even have the mind of Christ can think like Christ, have the Spirit of God so they can see Christ lived out in their own life. These people already have a spirit of oneness and unity. Now listen, if you sense that you're disunified from a brother or sister in Christ, no matter what's happened to make you sense that, first of all, you're not even believing the word. You already have that unity. He doesn't tell you to produce it. He says to preserve the unity of the spirit. Years ago, we thought we could produce it. And remember those days and we bought the name tags for the church and that was a ripoff. Everybody that I knew bought them and everybody I didn't know didn't buy them. I mean, that was really great. I mean, I think it was $12 a family or something like that. 
and I'm glad y'all just was long-suffering during that time. We've tried to have fellowships to get to know each other. We've done everything we can think of, and it comes down to this. If I'm living under the power of the Holy Spirit of God, and you're living under the power of the Holy Spirit of God, we can experience and enjoy the unity that's already there in Christ. If you're not doing it, I can't enjoy that with you. And if I'm not doing it, we can't enjoy that together because that destroys it right there. So Paul says, preserve it. How do you preserve it? In the bonds of what? Of peace. Now, I want to tell you what that means. I'm going to put it simply. It means a whole lot of things. But let me just put it simply so that every one of us can, if I can understand, I know you can. That means, first of all, with God. How do I preserve that unity with Him? I lay my sword down. God, I'm not going to fight you anymore. Your scripture goes against what the world tells me. But God, I'm going to trust you because you saved me. I'm going to believe what you say. And I'm going to lay my sword down. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to fight you at all. Even though I may not understand it all, I'm not going to fight you. But it not only means with God, it means with one another. If you've laid your sword down with God, you have to lay it down with your brother. If you pick it up with your brother, you've picked it up against God. Anytime the sword is picked up, the spiritual problems begin to start. So we live to preserve the unity of the Spirit at all costs, at the bonds of peace. If there's somebody in the body of Christ that somehow you've gotten a rift with, immediately deal with it in the bonds of peace. Drop your sword, do whatever it costs you to make sure that that relationship is bonded back together. Well, these things are important to understand. It is in order that the church, that Christ is glorified in the church that we do these things, that Christ be recognized in the way we are. And listen, the way we behave, doctrine and deeds are hand in hand in Scripture. And if I say I have the right doctrine and my deeds don't show it, then I have the wrong doctrine. Right doctrine produces right deeds and it's going to work together. And those deeds are going to call attention to Christ. They're not going to call attention to ourselves. This is the normal Christian life, living at peace with God and at peace with man. But that sounds great as long as man is living at peace with you. It doesn't say he's going to live at peace with you. It says you live at peace with him. That's the key. Always establish it on your side of the fence. Now, when that's understood, now we can enter into the chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. And I know it took me a little while to do that, but I had a lot more I wanted to say, so just relax. <laughs> I just spared you another 20 minutes of that. But I want to tell you, folks, we could spend six weeks going back and reclaiming what it really means to be a believer. So which means that in the church, the same people are in the church sometimes that are outside the church. That's what was going on here. The immoral was outside, but the immoral was inside. The covetous were outside, but the covetous were inside. And that's why they had to deal with it in chapter 5. And so if you think that you're in a protective environment here and nobody's ever going to offend you, you don't seem to understand there are a lot of people who come that aren't walking right with God. And so the key here is when you're offended, how do you respond to that person? Well, the first thing we want to look at is the problem that has occurred at Corinth. The problem that has occurred at Corinth. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Wow. I mean, Paul didn't waste any time, does he? He just jumps in both feet. It is not in the fact that this person in Corinth has been wronged. It's in the fact that he sought to go to the pagan courts to solve his problem with a brother in Christ. Now listen to me. The legal situations at Corinth probably were much like those of Athens of that day. 
And if you don't know the history of their time, perhaps this will help you a little bit to understand. Litigation was a part of everybody's everyday life. It had become sort of a form of challenge, even a form of entertainment. One ancient writer wrote the words, every Athenian is a lawyer of some kind. It seemed like all of them had their opinion and they're all somehow dealing with litigation in some way. Let me tell you why he said that. In the secular world of Athens, when a person arose or problem arose between two parties that they could not settle between themselves, the first course was the private arbitration. That was the first thing, private arbitration. Each party was assigned a disinterested private citizen as an arbitrator, and the two arbitrators, along with a neutral third person, would attempt to resolve the problem. Now, if they failed, the case was turned over to a court of 40 people who assigned a public arbitrator to each party. Interestingly, every citizen had to serve as a public arbitrator during the 60th year of his life. Isn't that interesting? You had to be at least 60 before you could be an arbitrator because they wanted somebody wise, somebody been down the road for a while. If public arbitration failed, the case went to a jury court, and listen, composed of from several hundred to several thousand jurors. Every citizen over 30 years of age was subject to serving as a juror, either as a party to a lawsuit, as an arbitrator, or as a juror. Most citizens regularly were involved in legal proceedings of one sort or another. This was their everyday life. And Corinth was only 45 minutes by car today, a little longer than that, by foot, back in that day from Athens. And probably the same legal thing that was going on in Athens was going on in Corinth. The Corinthian believers were so used to arguing and disputing and suing one another for anything that you can think of that they drugged that lifestyle right into the church. And they thought mistakenly that the church had nothing to do with it. This is my social life over here. This is my religious life when I come to church. And the Apostle Paul is about to nail that one with a big old nail right to the wall. They're wrong. It is a part of the church. It very much is. That course was not only spiritual wrong, it was practically unnecessary. Now listen, the Jews during that time, the Romans said to the Jews, they said, listen, you can solve your own differences. You know, they, did, they never did quite understand the Jewish people. And so they just let them do their own thing. Remember back in, during Jesus when they, when they wanted him to be crucified, et cetera, they had their own courts and they, they solved their own problem. Then they brought it to the Roman governors and officials. But listen, the Romans didn't have enough discernment to know the difference in a Jew and a Christian. So the Christians were considered to be Jews to the Romans. They didn't know the difference. And for that reason, the Christians had legally the right to solve their problems within their own selves. But they chose not to. The Corinthians chose not to. Let's don't go the means of the church. Let's go means of the public courts to solve our problem. Well, he says in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 6, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor. Now, that little phrase, does any one of you, is a little interesting Greek word. It means, is there any single one of you? And Paul's not pointing somebody to somebody particularly when he makes this statement. He's really saying, if there's only one, we got a huge problem we need to deal with. Just one, just one of you, just one of you. Remember the little leaven of chapter five? <laughs> if just one of you has drugged that leaven into here where you can demand your own rights and get the courts to legislate your affairs, if any one of you are in here, we got a problem to deal with. The word case is the word pragma, P-R-A-G-M-A. -A. Uh, it's translated matter. If anybody has a matter against someone other in King James, but when it's used in this kind of context, it means a lawsuit. 
you know, does any one of you have a lawsuit they want to file against someone else? In their language, in their culture, when that word was used in a judicial sense, it meant, is there any one of you that actually has a lawsuit against somebody else in the body of Christ? Now, the word for neighbor there, when he says, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, is the word heteros. Now, that's interesting. It's, it's really the word for another. There are two words for another, alos, another exactly like myself. Remember Jesus said, I'll go and send another comforter, one exactly like me, he's my spirit. But then there's the word heteros, another of a different kind. Now here, it doesn't mean somebody who's not a Christian, but somebody who has a difference of opinion than you have. <laughs> that automatically begins to show you the little bit of contention here between two people. Matter of fact, you can tell how that is gonna widen the gap between two people. They've got differences with one another. And that word heteros establishes that very clearly. A believer has a case against his neighbor. He's got a difference with him, whatever it is. And it's so serious, he's thinking about taking this person before the courts to solve his problem. So how do believers handle their differences? Are we to be in the world and act like they do or do we have a better way? And that's what chapter six is all about. Remember, we're in a class all by ourselves. We don't do it the way the world does it. How many times, I'm going to get you to ask, raise your hand a moment. How many times have you had something happen in your life and it's dealt with another Christian? Doesn't mean in the church here. I'm not talking about that. And you went to somebody that represented the world and the judicial system that did not know Christ and they gave you advice that just screamed at you that that's not what God would say. If that ever happened to anybody in here besides myself, <laughs> it has. It? But I want to tell you something. That's what Paul is trying to let them understand. What's reasonable to the world, he's already covered in chapter one, two, and three. It's not going to be reasonable to, the, to God and to the believer. The foolishness of the world, you see, is the wisdom of God. They look at, his, at Jesus dying on a cross as stupidity. That shows you the mindset of the intelligent world. So you have to be real careful here. Well, without this understanding, you won't realize what Paul is saying. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? The word dare is the word tomeo. It's not like, I dare you, Rick, to jump off that cliff. No, no it's not like that kind of dare. <laughs> it's somebody who has the audacity, somebody who dares to do something, to cross a line of authority that nobody would ever do. Do you mean you have the audacity that you would dare take this step in that direction? That's the word for dare. He says, Do, would any of you dare take your case before the unrighteous? That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? He automatically throws the court system and, and calls them unrighteous. Now we know that in the world of Corinth, that's pretty much the way it was. They didn't have any Christians usually in the judicial seats. If you found one, that's a, that's a find. Because back in those days, he was referring to not the fact, this was not a slam on their character. This was not a slam on their intelligence. This was not a slam on their family. What it was saying was they're unrighteous people. They don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, for that reason, they've never been taken out of the world and put into Him. For that reason, they don't have the mind of Christ. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. I want to show you something here. The next time that you want the ungodly world to solve a case for you with another brother who is in the body of Christ, look at verse 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says, but a natural man, a man who's not saved, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. 
You know, over the years, and I, I'm not so sure here, but in the years of ministry that I've experienced, I've, so many times people will come and seek godly counsel. They'll get it and not like it because it wasn't what they wanted. And so they'll go find somebody that will tell them what they want because that's really what they wanted to do to begin with. They have their rights. Now, if you can show me where a Christian has rights, I please, please show me after the service. I would love to see this. Where a slave has any rights whatsoever. All we have is privileges and all we have is an assignment to attach ourselves to him and to what the word of God has to say. As a matter of fact, the apostle Paul is saying here, he says, would anybody dare go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Now, if you'll think about the chapter we just came out of, did he not just give you an illustration of how the authority of the church works and how God works through that authority? You know, you could take the old boy who's been shacking up with his father's wife in chapter five. You can take him for the court system. They can send him to jail, fine him a ton of money, but can that transform his life? But you take that same believer and you remove him from the body of believers with grieving and mourning in the name of Jesus and the power of Jesus and turn him over to Satan. What do you think that's going to do? And what he's trying to show you is there's a system within a system. Even though we live in the world and it has its system, God has his own system for believers. But what we've got to do is get the hurt out of our mind. What we've got to do is get all of our logic out of our mind and come back and say, God, what are you saying? Does your word really work? And if you haven't settled that, then you've got much problems in understanding the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians. Christian arbitration. Now, isn't it amazing? These people in Corinth were going to pagan arbitration even before it went before the legislated arbitration, even before it went before a court trial. They would go to pagan arbitrators before they would go to Christian arbitrators. They wouldn't go the Christian route. That's telling you something about their attachment to Christ. It's telling you something about whatever it is that they're struggling with. And I want to tell you something, folks. This is not easy to preach because I want you to know we can get some, ourselves in some big situations here when we are being hurt in ways that I can't even describe to you. But does that change what the Word of God says? What we've got to remember is we've got to do it His way. A principle I learned early on in life was hinging on the unreasonable lies the unexpected. Hinging on the unreasonable lies the unexpected. What our minds tell us is ridiculous. What our, the world tells us is ridiculous. If God says it, and even though it's unreasonable to our natural mind, hinging on the other side of it are the unexpected blessings of God. It always has been that way. Never will be any different. And remember, it's by faith that we walk. He doesn't show you what's going to happen. He says, you take the step. Wouldn't you like to have been there when they crossed the Jordan River? <laughs> and God told the priest, is it flood time in the springtime of the year? And they said, well, excuse me, Lord, you got the wrong season here. Could we wait about three months and try this thing again? I mean, it's been 40 years. I mean, why not? And God says, no, sir. You put your, tell the priest to put their foot in the water. And that priest, can you imagine that first priest that walked out there? <laughs> and he took his foot and that water was just raging down that river. And he touched it with his foot. When his foot touched that water, I'm telling you, they probably shouted for two hours. That river went, you tell me power disc breaks. Man, that thing just went, Whoosh! backed up. It said a wall of water created. It backed up for 17 miles to the city of Adam and the ground dried and they walked over on dry ground. <laughs> I guarantee you, all the skeptics were in the back and they couldn't wait for the first ones to get drowned. So they could, yeah, huh? see, I told you. It doesn't make any sense to do what God says. That's stupid. I was in a deacon's meeting one time in another church. <laughs> Relax. 
in the land of Philistines when I was pastoring down there and, I'm, and right in the middle of it, we were talking about walking by faith and to make a move to step out on faith of what God had said. And one of the deacons looked over at me and said, come on, Wayne, has anybody in here got any common sense? Common sense, folks, is what's ruined the church in the 20th century, what we call common sense. God is very reasonable. He's not ridiculous. But you don't understand how reasonable he is until you're willing to understand what he says in his word and step out on it, even though you cannot see what he's going to do. What do you think about Simon Peter when he was on the water that night and Jesus came walking out there? I love Simon Peter. The only time he ever opened his mouth was changed feet. Jesus is walking out. He said, Lord, is it you? <laughs> and Jesus, you know he knew that was Peter. I mean, he knew he loved Simon Peter. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> he said, well, if it's you, bid me come to you. Oh, I'm thinking Jesus saying, yes. Come on, big boy. <laughs> and Simon Peter stepped out. Did he step out on the water? No. He stepped out on the word because God said to come. And I want to tell you what he discovered. What was over his head was under God's feet. That's the key. Now, folks, that's the kind of respect we've got to have for God's word. When it just rages in our mind that it doesn't make any sense. When we can't put it down on a sheet of paper. But God says it. Therefore, we are we obedient to it and we do what he's saying. And the Apostle Paul in verse 1 of chapter 6 is kind of saying, do you think you have a better way than God has of handling your conflicts within the church? Do you really think so? Well, who have you talked to? Well, I... Oh yeah, I call such and such and he told me such and such, but he doesn't know Jesus. Well, I call such and such and he told me such and such. He does know Jesus. What about him? Doesn't matter. What does God say first? <laughs> you got a lot of Christians that don't even know what God says. So the key is doing. The problem had developed in Corinth. Somebody had been wronged. Somebody had been hurt. And as a result of it, it wasn't what his hurt and it wasn't what it was going to cost him. And probably, I was reading in Brother Spiros' commentary on this thing, Brother Spiros thinks it was a money problem in the church. And we don't know that for a fact. But when he goes on down in verse 4, he talks about the common things. And he said mostly the common things that were going on, it was something to do with money between two believers within the church. Now, I don't know that for a fact. I can't say that for a fact. But that's what he says he believes it is. And, of course, he can't prove that either. The second thing is the problem that's occurred the second thing is the misunderstanding that's obvious amongst the people. There's a misunderstanding here. And I don't know if I'll be able to finish this point. That's okay. We'll just pick it up next time because we've got a lot to do in chapter 6. Oh, my goodness. I, I had really had to pray a lot before we got into this chapter because this is not an easy one. Verse 2. Or do you not know, he says, that the saints will judge the world? Whoa. And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? And interesting. The, you're going to judge the world. The argument by these arrogant believers in Corinth probably was, well, there's nobody in the church who've had training in law. That's why we went the route of the, of the, of the secular people because they could help us, you see. And what he's saying is, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Do you not know? He's talking about their future rule and reign with Christ. Do you not know that you will judge the world? His argument is, if you're going to judge the world with Christ one day, don't you think you can handle the simplicity of problems between yourselves within the church? Come on. I mean, the worst Christian you can find is more qualified than the person out in the world that doesn't know Christ in this sense. Now, by the way, when he says not to go to the pagan authorities, he doesn't mean you won't get a fair judgment. That's not what he's saying. That's not the issue. 
He's, sometimes you can probably get a fairer judgment in the world than you can get in the church. That's not his issue. That is not his issue. His issue is you don't seem to want to handle it the way God has set up for you to handle it. You don't want to seem to use the church and let it be done within the church, protecting the unity of believers. That's not, don't ever go out and say that I said, the scripture said that the world will not make a fair judgment because laws have been given and God even works through those. But his, his problem was they would not work it through the church. They'd rather go outside the church to settle their differences. And that tells you something. That tells you something. And that's what he's dealing with. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the word? The word for know there is where I got the point of the misunderstanding. The word for know is the word edo, E-I-D-O. It's a, it's, a, it's a verb that comes from the word horao, H-O-R-A-O, transliterated. And horao, it means to know, but sometimes you can know something intelligently or, or academically, but you don't really understand it. The word horao means to see something and to have a full grasp, a perception of it. You can really see what it really means. And that's something that's very important. You know, when he says in the scriptures in the New Testament, behold, behold, it's a form of the word hara'o. And it means not just to look up. It means to look, to observe, and understand what's going on spiritually in this situation. And so when he says to them, do you not know? Do you not have the spiritual perception to, un to realize that you're gonna judge the world? And if you're going to judge the world, you can deal with your own problems. Well, let's just stop right there because when we come back, we'll talk about how the Christians are going to judge the world. Someone came to me from the church last time I preached in chapter 5. And he said, Wayne, I know of a church down in Florida where a certain situation happened between a pastor and some money in the church, etc. And he did something a certain way, whether he thought it was right or wrong. Some of the people in the church got upset and they sued him. He turned around and countersued the church. It made the newspapers down there outside of Orlando, cost the church over 70 some thousand dollars in legal fees and completely destroyed their witness in the, in the area. Now he says he can drive by that church on a Sunday morning. There may be four cars in the parking lot because believers chose to go the pagan route to solve their problem. Probably got a fair judgment, but in doing so, did irreparable damage to the testimony of believers within the body of Christ, you see. We've got to hang on to it. And isn't this just fun going through 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 6. Don't, don't worry, it gets better. Chapter 7, we deal with divorce. Let's see, what's coming up in chapter 8? Matter of fact, this thing just doesn't look up at all until we get out of it. But I'm glad I'm going to do 2 Corinthians afterwards because that's, that, that's, that's a whole tone different than 1 Corinthians. Well, when you leave tonight, remember who you are. Remember whose you are. And remember, we are commanded to live according to what God says. We have no rights, have no rights. So when you demand your rights, what right are you demanding? That which the nation gave you? Well, they must have because Christ didn't give you any rights. He only gives you the privilege of being a part of his kingdom here on earth. That's a tough one to swallow. That's a tough one to swallow. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.